I'm Steve Lascazzo, and this is The Way. You're listening to This is The Way podcast's discussion of Ahsoka, part two, Toil and Trouble. It's season one, episode two. My goal is to help explain what's happening on screen for people who might not keep up with all the Star Wars content, especially those who skip anything animated, and I'm not making any judgments about that. I only watch so I can stay informed and participate in theory discussions about the future of the shows that I'm watching. With the exception of the two-episode week one premiere, Ahsoka will release weekly until the episode eight finale. So... Trying to guess where the story is going is part of the fun week to week for me. The creator of Ahsoka is Dave Filoni. He's the unofficially official caretaker of the character. He is the creator of this show, the showrunner. He directed the premiere, and he gets writing credit on all eight episodes of season one. He is not the director for Toil and Trouble, though. Steph Green has that honor, and it is her second episode two in Star Wars streaming. She was behind the director chair for The Book of Boba Fett Part 2, The Tribes of Tatooine. She's also going to be directing Part 3, coming up next. The end credit sequence is back, but there is no opening crawl. Eh, That makes sense. I thought perhaps the end credits would become the opening credits moving forward, but in the absence of concept art, I'll take the theme music by Kevin Kiner and this really cool star chart visual. The runic lettering has been translated thanks to the naming of the map's final destination, Peridia, in the episode. So we have planets Arcana, Agamar, Garel, Lothal, Mandalore, Yavin, Dathomir, Duro, Corellia, and the Corellian Run, Cato Nemoidia, Pasana, Corsant, Cetos, and planets called Odin and Quana. And they're all there on the screen, with the exception of the last two I mentioned. All are either well known or they have been visited in live action or animation or have a reference in novels and comics. Odin, O-D-Y-N, is interesting considering multiple references to Norse mythology. It could very well be where Balin and Shin are from, based on where it is in the universe, because it's in the same system, the the Danab system. It's the same as Cetos, which is visited in the episode. The end credit sequence is either created by Scarlet Letters or you and company. And that's why you and company. And I think I got that wrong in my episode one. I think it's actually you and co. Now, first, I didn't see you and co listed in the credits for episode one, but I just wasn't looking in the right place. Second, after researching what both of those companies do, Scarlet Letters... They seem to handle actual scrolling credits, whereas Co seems like a company that creates the sequences when there's a map or, you know, a star chart, (laughs) for example, that travels on the screen. So think of it this way. Scarlet Letters 
will, will be the one that handles the white on black or over a picture, artwork, pictures, and title cards. But you and co seems more likely to be the ones that develop, well, like how Indiana Jones, when there's a plane flying and then there's that red line going over the screen. But also they handled the concept art credit work on the Book of Boba Fett. They handled the new Little Mermaid credits and the map on Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves credits. So I rescind my previous crediting in episode one for Scarlet Letters. I apologize. You and company has done a great job. With apologies, I understand how one might draw such a conclusion. The runtime shows up as 44 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page, but that's not what it takes if you're just interested in watching action. That runs 37 minutes, 12 seconds from when the music starts playing over black before the Lucasfilm and Star Wars sequence begins to the cut to black before the credits. I'm counting from there because the music feels like part of the opening scene to me, but... Well, okay, maybe it isn't really? If you start when the screen fades in after the sequences, you cut out about 24 to 25 seconds. So we'll say... It's an under 37-minute episode. 36 minutes, 48 seconds-ish. The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus episode tab and the episode page description are identical. And if they are week-to-week, we'll just say the show's description from here on out. It reads, Ahsoka and General Harrison Dula travel to New Republic shipyards and make an unexpected discovery. Directors of photography are Eric Stilberg, as in part one, but also Kuyen Tran. She is married to Sam Regal, a voice actor who has worked several times in Star Wars. He's also part of the YouTube show Critical Role. It's maybe the most accessible weekly Dungeons & Dragons game that you can watch on the internet. Editor, Roseanne Tan. It's her first Star Wars work here, but she's worked for Marvel on Hawkeye and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier shows. And she's got a bunch of Mr. Robot episodes to her credit as well. Let's mention hair designer Maria Sandoval. Now, why? Sabine's hairstyle gets a makeover by the character herself in this episode. And that's pretty challenging to make the character's locks look good and make it look like she did them herself. Well, that was Maria Sandoval's responsibility in this episode. Music, once again, by Kevin Kiner. And by now, I don't think I need to read his resume off. Lots of animated Star Wars. He's done live action for Star Trek, Stargate, CSI franchises, a lot of other things. My mention on Twitter, or X, about the collaboration with Gorenson, Gorlick, and Tudzin on Igya Ka did not get a response by Kiner Music's Twitter handle, but they did end up posting the same thing later. I'm still curious about the stunt coordinating on the show, because J.J. Dashnaw isn't the only stunt coordinator listed. He's on top of the screen, but then there's Ming-Q, the fight coordinator, and then later, on that same page, you know, after the stunt doubles and performance capture artists, then another person, Matt Leonard, is also listed as stunt coordinator. It doesn't say second team or anything. Then, there is a co Stunt coordinator, Natalie Padilla, and an assistant stunt coordinator, Brandon Cornell, just like in episode one. Additional voices for this episode are credited as David W. Collins, Terry Douglas, Robin Atkins Down, 
or Robin Atkin Downs, Michael Ralph, Helen Sadler, Sam Witwer, and Matthew Wood. Now, Collins and Sadler had more prominent voices in the last episode. They were credited as the comms officer and an HK assassin droid. And re-recording mixer and supervising sound editor Bonnie Wilde was also featured. But a lot of those other names, Tara Douglas was mentioned last week, Robin Atkins Down or Atkin Downs, Michael Ralph, and Sam Whitwer and Matthew Wood, they were all mentioned last week too. They just are there to provide provide extra voices whenever they need. Alright, we've reached the cast section now. What's your name, son? Ahsoka Tano is played in live action by Rosario Dawson. She takes over for Ashley Eckstein, who voiced the character for years in The Clone Wars and Rebels. But Dawson, she's been playing the character since The Mandalorian Season 2, and she was also in The Book of Boba Fett. She did very well in Part 1. Sabine Wren is Natasha Lou Bordizo, also did very well in the first episode. She's taking over for Tia Sirkar, who voiced the Sabine character in Rebels. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is General Hera Syndulla. Great job in Part 1. She takes over for Vanessa Marshall. New character, Balin Skull, played by Ray Stevenson. He has credits in Star Wars, going back to the Clone Wars and Rebels, as Gar Saxon, but now he's a live-action, new, brand-new character, and everybody was excited for his debut, and it's not hard to see why after the first episode, but sadly, he passed away earlier this year in May. Ivana Sakno is Shin Hati, brand-new character as well. Diana Lee Inosanto is Morgan Elsbeth, a returning character from Season 2 of The Mandalorian. And as we found out last week, the character is a descendant of the Night Sisters of Dathomir. David Tennant provides the voice for lightsaber droid Hu Yang. This is a character that we've seen before in The Clone Wars. Iman Isfani is not heard in this episode... We don't see him in action in the episode, but he's still listed in the end credit sequence because we do see an image of him as Ezra Bridger. Min Weaver is Peter Jacobson. Maybe the most recognizable part was his role as Dr. Chris Taub in House, but he's got a really long career. He was on Bull, Law and Order, NCIS, Ray Donovan, The Americans, and Fear the Walking Dead. C101 is Shelby Young. Last episode, she was listed under additional voices. Now, she's done work on The Bad Batch, Young Jedi Adventures, Visions, Star Wars video games, many others. She's the voice of Leia in Forces of Destiny and Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation Terrifying Tales and the Lego Star Wars video games. So, she's got a long career with Star Wars, it's just usually. And here, also, she's just a voice. Command crew number one is Kelly Phelan, and she's often found doing stunt work in things like Yellowstone, 1923, NCIS, Outer Range, Castle, Westworld, MacGruber. She was the main double for Jennifer Aniston in Murder Mystery 2 and the Apple TV series The Morning Show. And looky there, she was a stunt actor in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. way back in Season 1. There are also people in the episode that you don't see but you will see their performances. Christopher Bartlett is back as a droid performance artist once again, capturing his moves for C101 and Shelby Young's voice work. Leanna Vamp does the other Corellia protocol droid. Daniel Bowman and Justin Sonfeld also performance capture for various protocol droids. Maybe 
some of the RA7 inventory variety. Paul Darnell is listed as the performance actor for Maroc. All right, listen, he's two inches taller than Iman Esfandi. He is the same height as Sam Witwer, who is best known in Star Wars circles as the voice of Darth Maul in the Clone Wars and Rebels, but also as Emperor Palpatine and a character called Galen Merrick in Star Wars The Force Unleashed video game. Interpret that information as you wish. Oh, we will talk about it, believe me, but let's get to the show. He can go about his business. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. Move along. Word of warning here. I have like 31 pages of notes. So this is there's going to be a lot more discussion about some of the scenes that are even short ones. But I just I feel like sometimes you have to spend a lot of time on some dialogue-heavy moments, and then you can skip really fast through great scenes, but it's really hard for me to describe action sometimes when it doesn't, you know, I mean, there was a great lightsaber scene, but I'm not going to describe every swing of the blade, right? All right, let's start out with the episode and the fade-in with some voices heard. It's dialogue from last episode and leading us into Ahsoka staring out on Lethal from a hospital room. It's where she brought Sabine when she came to her rescue just a few moments too late at the end of Master and Apprentice. No crawl this time, remember? There's just some voices in the force. Ahsoka senses Sabine is replaying these events of the previous day in her mind. So she wakes her up. The droids, they took the metal locks. You don't understand. I, I unlocked it. So now she feels bad about disobeying Ahsoka? Well, it's not because she disobeyed, though, but because she realized, well, now we may not find Ezra. Sabine is not a teenager at this point. She still hasn't grown up, though. Or at least she did, and now she's regressing. It feels like any character growth that she made in Rebels just goes out the window for this show. It does bother me a little bit. I do admit, if you're making a live-action show, it isn't really compelling to have all this character growth before you even start. It's quite obvious what we're supposed to think about how Ahsoka is feeling about Sabine at this moment. The dialogue's clear, and the acting makes it even more so. Ahsoka's mad. Sabine is embarrassed. She's got no backup of the information that she got when unlocking the map sphere, but there is a lead. Ahsoka hears there were multiple droids, and Sabine took one out. But when... She was approaching in her T6. Ahsoka may have only scanned and seen one human, and that was Shin, and then one droid, the one that ran with the map sphere. So now, hey, there's another one. We didn't see that one. Her priority, of course, in the moment, was saving Sabine's life. And I think it's really good that we didn't have to see this choice being made, like, do I go for the map or do I save Sabine? I mean, I'm glad we don't have to wonder about that. Ahsoka is going to go back to the comms tower, see what she can find. Sabine is still recovering after getting a lightsaber through her midsection. She wants to make up for her stupid move taking the sphere out of the ship. Ahsoka. Get some rest. Wait. You need my help. No. You've done enough. Ouch. The next scene is Balin and Shin approaching a circle of stones on Cetos. It reminded me a lot of the one in the second season Mandalorian episode where Grogu meditates on Tython before being captured by Moff Gideon's dark troopers. 
We find out the planet name, Cetos, during the discussion, but how did they know how to get here? If they need Elsbeth later to activate the map, how did they know about this location? Balin calls it a reflex point. The sphere also moved into a locked position after he set it down. Now, is that because the object itself holds some power and this is a key to this stone device? Or is Morgan's magic later the key to magnifying the power of this map amongst the stones? It's a minor plot issue for me that they knew where to look before they looked where to look, but the map is unlocked. So maybe they knew a little from what Elsbeth already told them. And you know what? It's not a big deal since they already knew what she gave up to Ahsoka during interrogation. I'm sure Elsbeth told them all about that. The really big deal to me is that, like the end credit sequence, this planet seems to be somewhere Purgle visit on their migratory journey. Balin Skull sees the shadow of one of them in the clouds, and we hear one, I think, right before we go to the title card. Episode title is Toil and Trouble, a clear reference to Shakespeare's Witches in Macbeth. Perhaps this is an indication that Morgan Elsbeth, a witch, is leading them down a path of self-fulfilling prophecy. She is, after all, descendant from those witches of Dathomir, and these are, again, not Sith, not Jedi, but they do know some of the mysteries of the Force. Now, Jedi and Sith are... Groups that study and use the Force for specific ends. What if instead there was a separate group that felt connection to that power but embarked on their own study of that power? They considered it magic, and they may have found powers that Jedi and Sith never did because they weren't looking at it the same way. They weren't looking from the same branch of studies. They might also not be able to use power then that the Jedi and Sith are able to because they study and have formal studies and have a formal school set up from a different point of view. Back on Lothal, Ahsoka takes Sabine's speeder back to the tower and uses the Force to sense the conflict that took place, probably only the night before. That's a power seen before in Star Wars canon, so it's not completely new. Although, I'm not sure that it has been used in live action. It's not being shown to us as powerful as, you know, Anakin's Force visions in the prequels, but we do hear the rumble of voices and echoes of lightsabers that are clashing. I mean, we hear it uh, in the episode, and I assume that that's what Ahsoka's hearing. At the tower top, Sabine's Lothcat won't stay inside. The door's open, but I really do get the impression that Ahsoka recognizes right away this animal is not comfortable inside. She clearly clocks the invader before we see it start descending from the ceiling, and you can see it in the background in one shot. It's an interesting scene when you watch this a second time because she's basically luring out the droid. She knows it's there. She pretends to be off guard when she turns on this hollow image casting device that shows Ezra. 
was hoping you were still here. Back at the hospital room now, Sabine gets to do what she's good at. She's a tinkerer, and she was during Rebels. Everyone in Star Wars seems to be able to work on technology, though, right? I mean, they all seem to know how to fix their ships, and even though sometimes the phrases and terms that are used are, well, they seem a little bit nonsense, Lucasfilm does a good job of pretending that all the tech makes sense, and for story purposes, sure, the HK droid head's going to help them somehow because, well, the plot needs it. But in this universe, it's not like it doesn't make sense at all. Sabine, she's much smarter than most when it comes to this stuff. We learn in the Rebel show that while she was an Imperial cadet, she develops a technology that was able to be used against Mandalorian Beskar armor, even though she herself is Mandalorian. It horrified her that it might end up used to hurt her people, and it's one of the reasons she became disillusioned and joined... Hera's Spectre's squad. The scene doesn't seem like much, but it does show us a few things. Hera's there in hologram form, so she's heard about what happened and cares enough to watch and not just get a report later. Hu Yang is there and shows concern for his own well-being when he finds out messing with this head might make it explode. We also see Ahsoka and Sabine remain calm. Why is that? Well, I think it's because it's the Force. They can sense that the head won't explode, where Hu Yang is basically just a bunch of circuitry. Now, if Star Wars ever intimates that a completely fabricated droid can use the Force, I think we're going to have trouble. But the Force specifically has been mentioned as having great attachment to living things. Qui-Gon Jinn even called it, you know, the living force. Be mindful of the living force, young Padawan. This operation Sabine is performing on the head is short-circuited by Hu Yang, who pulls the plug early, but all is not lost. The droid came from Corellia. Yes, where Han Solo is from, the Millennium Falcon was built, and where the Solo movie begins, and it was once under Imperial control, but now, instead of just building ships, the New Republic is dismantling them there. Ahsoka clues us in that Morgan Elsbeth had factories there, I guess for Thrawn. It's interesting, this dynamic that's being set up. Last episode, Elsbeth called herself a survivor. She and a night sister named Marin are the only two that I'm aware survived a apparent purge that was commanded none other than by none other than Emperor Palpatine himself. Thrawn is a student of art and history. And I suppose, after finding Elsbeth, he trusted her in order to preserve her as a part of galactic history. I mean, we're going to talk more about Thrawn when he appears, and we'll find out a little bit more of their dynamic. But you should know this. His alien species is a blue-skinned Chiss. They're from a planet called Scylla in the Unknown Regions. And I believe they were able to travel in hyperspace by identifying those among them that could use the Force, even though they didn't know what it was called. They were isolated otherwise, but they became, you know, uh, uh, able to use hyperspace because they didn't have these high-tech computers. They used actual people who could see the future through the Force. I think it's a little like how in the movie Dune, there are those that used spice to be able to navigate. And obviously, George Lucas took inspiration from Frank Herbert, since, you know, we have the spice mines of Kessel. And anyway... Ahsoka and Hera are going to meet on Corellia to see if they can figure out why this assassin droid came to Lothal since there is this connection to Elsbeth. I'll meet you there. Let's get going. 
No, you need to recover. I'm fine. Sabine wants to help, but honestly, good call by Ahsoka not letting her go. Now, we don't have to see her screw things up or slow them down, and we don't have to have her presence tipping off the enemy that she survived and that she might also still be a threat because of the knowledge of the map. That's all cut out because we she just doesn't go, all right? Finally, she listens and stays. The conversation she has with Hera when she sends off Hu Yang is important for us to hear. You did good. Tell that to her. I do. But she's not the one who needs to hear it right now. I haven't seen her in years, and the first thing I do goes sideways. You're both difficult. I always thought that made it work. Until it didn't. In the absence of Sabine's mother, who I think is still around, I don't think anything happened to her unless the Purge of Mandalore killed her. I mean, this is great parenting by Hera. Hera was always the mother of the crew, even before she became a parent herself. I've seen some critique about how the character of Hera is being portrayed, but to me, this is the most hopeful character on the show so far. And without her, the first two episodes feel much more depressing. Thanks, Hera. Anytime. Yeah, and thank you, Dave Filoni. Back on CTOS, Elsbeth arrives. Balin's not familiar with this site. He asks who built it. He suspects maybe it's more Night Sister ruins, I think, but Elsbeth doesn't claim it. She says it's from an ancient people from a distant galaxy. So that's not the Chiss, according to current canon, because they're from this galaxy. It's probably not the Rakatans either, because they're from also this galaxy, just in, you know, the Unrown regions or the Tempered Wastes or whatever it's called. But honestly, Filoni can retcon anything he wants and he can make up anything he wants. This could be a reference to the Yuzon Vong. Or maybe Star Wars is going to suggest that all those Sith acolytes on Exegol and Rise of Skywalker, they're the ancient ones, and maybe there is a different origin for the Force and for the Sith than we're familiar with. I mean, it's all a huge question that no one has the answer to based on what we know of Star Wars from other shows and existing canon. So if you think you're the only one in the dark, you are not. This is a question everyone has. Show me what you found. This place was not built by the Jedi. Whose work is it? An ancient people from a distant galaxy. Would you like to see it? Elsbeth does a little magic on the sphere, and true to what we've been shown in the Clone Wars and Rebels, Night Sister magic is green-colored in live action as well. It is not green light like a lightsaber, but I do wonder if there's a connection, since Green-colored kyber beams are associated with the study of the mystery of the Force. Most famous user of a green blade? Well, it's your choice, Yoda or Luke. Elsbeth activates the map, then amplifies it, and things rotate. There's even a sound of something heavy locking into place. The stones don't seem to be moving, but she rotates the map of the current galaxy, so another galaxy ends up being focused over this cutout semicircle on the tallest stone that's facing the sea. The map sends out this beam of light from one galaxy to the other, and let's point out, 
that's hyperspace across the entire galaxy, and it wouldn't be instant. This other galaxy is maybe 20 galaxies away, the, the length of 20 galaxies away from the one that they're currently in. And the point lands on an outer arm of that distant galaxy. Around that picture of the galaxy on the star map is a projection of a circle of Pergil. So whoever made this map was studying not just where things are in space, but clearly there's a reference to these Pergil, the, the space whales, and that they travel there. These creatures are living beings that don't just live and like swim, so to speak, in deep space. They feed on gas from gas planets, and there never was a reference in the original trilogy to them being seen around Bestman, you know, Cloud City. I mean, there wasn't a reason to back then. It's only in Rebels that we hear about them. And I played a clip in our last podcast about it. These creatures, they have this the body of a whale, but then tails like a giant squid. And then those tails pulse right before they start to travel through hyperspace. We saw them in live action in The Mandalorian Season 3 when Mando and Grogu were traveling through hyperspace. Those were those things that were you know, floating through the walls of the, the hyperspace tunneling. This path seems to be something that some ancient race discovered because they were interested in the Purgle. I mean, there's not many other drawings on, on the star map, but those are clearly rotating in a circle around that other galaxy. Elsbeth seems to be absolutely sure Thrawn traveled this route. So maybe we'll find out how she knew that or heard about how he disappeared later in the series. I mean, we don't hear about her at all in Rebels. And we found out that this route that they're on has a name. The pathway to Peridia. Some call it that. The children of the Jedi Temple call it that. It comes from old stories. Fairy tales. Tales which are based on truths. That in itself is interesting because it's played as this is a very well-known and old tale. Balin might attribute this to a fairy tale, but this is brand new to us as Star Wars fans. I don't know why Balin is seeing this with his eyes, but still having doubts. Usually you see doubt re represented because, you know, the eyes haven't seen and you have to have faith. But here we're being told this former Jedi feels that the path is clouded, even though he's seeing the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Elsbeth herself hears a call. Literally, the closed captioning says, mysterious voice, Morgan. It also sounds like it says come, but the only word that appears after that mysterious voice captioning is Morgan. So the rest is said to be unintelligible whispering. So who is this whispering from? She says, Thrawn calls to me across time and space. But Balin says he's, you know, this is just dreams and fractured hope. She responds. The threads of fate do not lie. I'm left to wonder, though. Is it really Thrawn? What if she's playing games with Balin and Shin, and she's after something different and using them? From the trailers, we're left to assume it is Thrawn. But maybe... She's actually trying to reach a sect of Night Sisters or something like that. You know, 
maybe they know about this space travel lane and that and they left the galaxy and Dathomir in advance of being wiped out. Maybe she knows they left and she stayed behind as a signaler. Like she was going to signal them when it was safe to return. You know, sure, Thrawn's there and that's part of it. But maybe that was just how she survived in this galaxy. And for her, she's using that connection to achieve further means. And maybe that's what Balin mentions later in the scene to Shin. When some it's war, for some it's this. For us it's power, power that you you can't even imagine. Elspeth refers to the Eye of Sign, but again, it's not S-C-I-O-N as in air, which would make more sense to this story since Thrawn was first part of the Legends novel arc called Heir to the Empire. Now that's not part of canon. Thrawn is. But those old Expanded Universe fans would make that connection there. This reference seems to be to the hyperspace ring that we later see, and it's supposed to transport a very large ship. Hyperspace rings, they were first seen in the prequel trilogy. I think Obi-Wan used one. They helped ships without hyperdrives make this jump to light speed. And Marok is mentioned by name for the first time. Marok will complete his task. Say that he does. Sir Marok is mentioned in one line in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, where it says, Sir Merrick, the good knight that was betrayed with his wife, for he made him seven-year a werewolf. I think the he in that sentence refers to Sir Uri, who had seven wounds that would never heal unless the best knight in the world heals them. In that case, it was Lancelot, a good knight, who appealed to God for help that cured him. Faith. But not necessarily because he was the most virtuous. It was only because he appealed to the Trinity. So how might that apply here? Okay, so perhaps Marak was trying to help someone in the past and then suffered because of it. Some people have pointed out some really interesting evidence. Marak, in that story, is turned into a werewolf. Is that a connection to the Lothwolves, suggesting that it could be Ezra Bridger? And it could be, when you consider that Marak's helmet in the Star Wars helmet sequence before the show is in blue light, which typically is reserved for good characters. Although there is a Mandalorian helmet shown in reddish-orange before the episode at the very end of the sequence, so maybe that has nothing to do with it. But it might be a connection for Sabine and Ezra, since that passage from Mort Arthur mentions a wife. I know, I know, we were just told last episode he considers her a sister, but maybe she doesn't agree. Now, okay, a man named Alan French wrote a book in like the early 1900s based off that one line called Sir Merrick, A Tale of the Days of Sir Arthur, where this guy French invents this whole story out of that one line reference. And it refers to one of Morgan Le Fay's witches turning Sir Merrick into a werewolf. That character, Irma, is a self-serving witch that takes advantage of her position to ruin the lands that she oversees for Merrick while he is off fighting for King Arthur. All of that, that's invented by French, not Thomas Mallory who wrote more to Arthur. But all that is made up too. I mean, it's all made up stuff. It's not much different than the people that invent all the Rings of Power stuff from Tolkien's work, except, you know, the Rings of Power is visually appealing trash. 
<laughs> compared to everything else. Boo! Boo! Rubbish! Filth! Slime! Muck! Boo! 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 Okay, this isn't a Lord of the Rings podcast, and I, I know some people love that show, but what follows in this episode is Ahsoka visits Corellia. It's very cool to see her ship approach, and we get to see more of that planet. The bureaucratic Min Weaver is played by Peter Jacobson. He's a fun character. Hera is there to greet Ahsoka. Chopper's there. They have questions for Min Weaver. He explains, in order to keep things moving, hey, you got to make a little deal with the devil sometimes. A lot of the shipbuilders loyal to the Empire probably made a lot of money as long as output didn't drop, right? That was the only time that the Empire ever checked, dip, checked up on you is if people weren't making their money. I don't think Corellia made its name only during Imperial rule, but maybe it did. Maybe the prosperity of the planet is a direct result of Empire rule. And in that case, it makes sense that they would be sad to see that go. But according to Weaver, they don't really care who's in charge as long as they're getting paid. That's really not true because we see it play out differently in the control room later, but maybe that's how he sees it. On the way to the control room on this little transport, Hera and Ahsoka have this moment together where Hera makes a case for Ahsoka resuming Sabine's training. At this point, I'm still not on board with Sabine being recognized as Force-sensitive after all the history that we hear and see during the Rebel show. We just kind of have to accept it, though. I mean, I did appreciate the little back and forth between Hera and Ahsoka about if she's ready or not. I'm curious. What makes someone ready? You just know. So do they. That's so true, isn't it? I mean, is she ready? Well, we get a scene in her hospital room where Hu Yang notices the lightsaber, her lightsaber as Hu Yang points it out, because it once belonged to Ezra. He passed it on. And then... She made modifications. So I guess it's the modifications part that makes it hers. Because I sure don't consider Anakin's lightsaber to be Luke's or Rey's. This is not an official rule. It's just how Hu Yang interprets it. Because he's the lightsaber droid for almost every Jedi, Jedi Padawan for centuries. Now, has she kept up her training? Well, no. He gives us a line we've heard in the trailers. Well, perhaps it is time to begin again. You gotta remember, there's still 20 years or so before it's time for the Jedi to end, according to that dumb movie. Sabine's reasoning for not continuing her training, it's unacceptable to Hu Yang. She says, she can't train if Ahsoka won't teach, and he points out that's an awful excuse. Hey, she quit on me. The past is the past. Move forward. Once again... Big difference. It's a much more palatable way of saying kill the past, but I did notice it. I still think there's a big difference. If you don't, and you think this is foreshadowing by the story team, okay. But we're not being told to forget. We're just being told to move forward, move on. Sabine is hung up on not being wanted. Now, if that's a permanent condition or part of her personality, she'd make a terrible Jedi. Honestly, it's Hu Yang's line that, to me, almost makes this whole Sabine being suddenly Force-sensitive thing even slightly okay. I never had the talent, the abilities, 
Not like Ezra. That much is true. Thanks. I have known many Padawans over the centuries, and I can safely say your aptitude for the Force would fall short of them all. Well then. I won't waste any more of her time. The only time you are wasting is your own. She does take the lightsaber from Hu Yang, but to be honest, this is absolutely the worst part of the show to me. We don't need her being called a Padawan. Ahsoka is not a Jedi. She's not shy about saying that. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. She didn't want to train Grogu. And I don't get the impression from this show that we're supposed to believe that that had to do with her failures. She even mentioned in The Mandalorian that it was Grogu's attachment to Din Djarin that made him a poor candidate. That's right. I knew you could do it. Very good. He's formed a strong attachment to you. I cannot train him. What? Why not? You've seen what he can do. His attachment to you makes him vulnerable to his fears. His anger. All the more reason to train him. No. I've seen what such feelings can do to a fully trained Jedi Knight. To the best of us. I will not start this child down that path. Better to let his abilities fade. Sabine's even worse. She's older. She's got attachment issues, clearly. She's moody. She's not mindful. This, to me, is Filoni's biggest mistake so far. Profits generated from a single star destroyer are enough to fund a variety of New Republic reconstruction programs, among other things. Other things like? Well, our board and primary investors have first look at all unique hardware, its price point and distribution. Is that a hyperdrive core? Yes. Refurbished from an SSD ready for its new life serving the Republic, this facility has produced nine of these new models. The New Republic Defense Fleet isn't building anything that big. Okay, on Corellia, Ahsoka and Hera are playing Law and Order in the control room. There's some odd glances we're supposed to notice from the human crew in the room. The two are questioning Weaver about what's happening with all these parts being salvaged. I love the line from Weaver about not having clearance and authorization on files, and then Hera says, I'm authorizing it. What class of starship are they for? Uh, let's see. Oh, there it is. Classified. Classified. I'm a general. Nothing's classified to me. I'm sorry. I cannot unseal the document without authorization. Well, then I'm authorizing it. I'm not sure you can. Want to bet? I couldn't help but chuckle at that. It's a protocol droid, though, C101, that rats out the whole operation. I'm not sure how that happens. I mean, maybe it's because... It's a surprise inspection that this one is loud in the room while they're asking questions. It feels like an operation that, you know, they've got going on like this would be a little bit more tight security-wise. It was a little silly for these crew members to try something. But I suppose they might not have known that Ahsoka was a Jedi. I mean, people haven't seen them for many years. Certainly, we just saw in the last episode that what was left of the military for the New Republic is overconfident. So... Maybe this group has done something like that before on unsuspecting investigators. Hera did say in an earlier scene, Elsbeth's operation was thought to be shut down. 
I saw some people complaining on the internet that the transport just so happens to be leaving at that moment, but it's clear the control tower's in on this thing, so I'm sure they were messaging to the ground crew, hey, get going, people are asking questions. Ahsoka pursues the ship. It looks like she might have ended up jumping on board, except before she can do that, she's met by an HK droid and Maroc. The lightsaber battling, to me, was terrific. Not everybody likes it, but I thought it was good. It's clear this person with this Inquisitor blade is familiar with the Force. She's not like Sabine. So is this an Inquisitor that survived? Maroc was referred in the episode as he or him, but because it's Disney and Lucasfilm, I don't think we can just assume anything by pronouns. Forgot how annoying you are. Logical. While that swordplay's happening, Hera takes the Phantom, which is part of her larger ship, the Ghost, and she pursues the transport with the hyperdrive. Along for the ride is the astromech droid we saw earlier in the episode, C110P, or 0P. He's the droid member of the Ghost crew, and Rebels fans will tell you that Chopper is very much unlike any other droid, especially astromechs. If R2-D2 is a lovable scamp, Chopper, or Chop, as he's sometimes called, is an absolute psychopath. Dave Filoni voices Chopper. I know, it's garbled through an audio process, but those are actual words that he's speaking, and you can kind of tell through context clues in the responses from people what he's saying, and I think some of the shooting scripts actually have his dialogue in there. He's not virtuous like R2. But he is, at times, shown to do heroic things. Hera is not going to shoot down this ship. She wants to put a tracker on it, and with Chopper's help, she does. Maroc escapes his battle with Ahsoka. He's unable to beat her quickly, so the best thing to do is just run. Shin is also on board this ship that approaches to help. Maroc started his fight with a single blade, went double-bladed, and then threw the spinning saber at Ahsoka. When he's leaving... He summons it back to him, and Ahsoka pulls a, pulls a move that her master once did in the Clone Wars. Anakin and her, they can no-look dodge it without any fear. Probably not too difficult for any Jedi, but still, a very, very cool scene. Tell me you have good news. We got a tracking device on that transport. All right, then. On Lothal, Sabine has recovered and returned to her comms tower abode where she digs out her Beskar out of mothballs. Her pauldrons have the familiar Phoenix Crest, and then just like at the end of the Rebels series, we see the other side has a Purgle drawing on it. She seems to meditate before suiting up and symbolically cuts her hair with what I suppose is a vibroknife. She'll later say she feels more like herself with a haircut, and that might be true. She's not been acting like the Sabine we knew from Rebels. So in recognition of her rejoining her old past, she removes the hair she's grown since we last saw her. She's leaving that past behind. It's a shame they did this to her character, though, for a story beat. It's not like the character she became through four seasons of Rebels just suddenly doesn't exist. I think I mentioned earlier, but you want to show character growth, right? You, you want that in your story, but... They could have just had her growth be that she's had a lot of time to meditate on her feelings. And, you know, the Purge of Mandalore happened. She, you know, maybe her mom died. 
and then she withdrew and she found that she developed or discovered this slight attunement to the force when she was in the darkest moments. What a mess. How can they still be loyal to the Empire? It's not loyalty. It's greed. I'm not too happy with the way the character is being developed, and I don't like this small scene with Hera and Ahsoka. I, I don't like that line either. I mean, it's only there, I think, to provide the short story beat before the next scene, which is the real important one, and it itself is a payoff for a discussion on the way to the control room between Hera and Ahsoka on Corellia. You know, Ahsoka said, you just know when someone is ready, and they do too. I'm ready. Sabine is now ready. And what I initially thought was this recreation of a scene from Rebels, I think it's only an echo of it. The shots are very similar. If you watch the final shots of Rebels, and you watch this scene where Sabine is walking in, sees the mural, she sees it in both and then, but there are differences. Ahsoka is in a white robe with a with a staff in Rebels. It's her Gandalf the White moment. She's in gray with no staff in this episode. The building the mural is in showed signs of damage in Rebels, but here any damage that might have happened is repaired, or it never happened to this building. And the mural in this episode is not on the building's wall; it's on display. As if the wall was moved here. Again, I think this is evidence. This is a recreation of, uh, you know, an echo. Not a recreation of the animated scene at the end of Rebels. It's showing us the resumption of Sabine's path. They had that scene at the end of Rebels. And now there's another scene that's an echo. of It could be a small retcon. It could be. But Filoni also could have very easily just had her dress in white... And have the mural on the wall. And have the building walls crumbled a little bit. But he made that change. And I think that's because he's telling us this isn't the same scene. Nice haircut. It's more me. Hu Yang reports the tracking device indicates the ship that they're tracking is in the Danab system and orbiting CTOS. So they head out. Ahsoka makes Sabine's return to training official. Take us out, Padawan. Official for us, at least. The episode is going to conclude on Elsbeth's ship. Presumably, it's attached to the Eye of Scion. She gives an update to a holographic projection of Shin, Balin, and Merrick. She says, you know, the final hyperdrive thing is complete and we're going to go rescue Thrawn. But this projection is not like anything we've seen in Star Wars. Okay, there's a greenish glow and a rippling dust effect happening on this hollow projection. It's maybe not even a hollow projection. Usually, it's like a flickering blue TV screen image. But this is familiar, but new at the same time. We may never get an explanation of why this is different, but it sure is interesting. Also interesting is how Ahsoka's confrontation with Marak on Corellia is troubling to Balin. Shin is almost surprised. She says, hey, we made a clean escape. Ahsoka couldn't have tracked us here. Well, Ahsoka's not tracking you. They're tracking that hyperdrive transport. 
Elizabeth basically asks Balin, search your feelings on Ahsoka. I mean, that's a paraphrase. Then he replies, her presence is elusive, but he senses her determination vividly. The next few lines really punctuate how great this new character of Balin is to me. And I am very much interested in Balin and Shin's motivations because of it. She's coming. Nothing can prevent our journey. To kill her would be a shame. There are so few Jedi left. Sentimental. Truth. And now we wait for episode three. If you remember my last podcast episode, I mentioned I only watched one episode at a time, and then I produced a podcast for each one. I'm recording this on Saturday of the week the episode aired. I think it might have made me seem smarter if I had watched both together, but I didn't want to overwhelm myself, and I'm not too concerned about seeming smart. I didn't want to have to keep track. I didn't want to be afraid that I was going to reveal something from episode two in episode one's podcast, so... The show is continuing to get things right when it's calling back and referencing Star Wars. It it really seems like the story that Lucasfilm wants to tell really relies or, or is, is designed to set up the sequel trilogy. I mean, they're hammering home for us how naive the New Republic is between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. It's fertile ground for stories because of that naivety, but... It is getting a little tiring that we keep seeing, you know, some people know about this, but not everybody, and and no one wants to admit that all this smoke means there's a fire. I have heard Chuck Wending's book series, Aftermath, covers a lot of the explanation, but I'm I'm not going to bother with that. I'm not going to read those books to find out what's happening in the show, even if they are important. The Empire seems... Like it was a waste of resources all the time. It just seemed like it took what it wanted whenever it needed something. And it was so oppressive. But I'm repeatedly being told that nothing really changed at the top. And that there was all this corruption in the Empire. And that it still exists. Now, that may be true of real government. (laughs) In the United States and beyond. But it's not hopeful. I, I know Dave Filoni is a huge fan of Tolkien, and I'm wondering what he thinks might have happened in the Fourth Age, after Frodo and Smeagol destroy the ring in Mount Doom. You know, what would the reign of Aragorn look like? I mean, it would be true that evil would still exist, but does that taint somehow the victory that they had? I mean, we don't have orcs and trolls and Sauron in Star Wars. We have Imperials and Rebels, and after the Empire falls, you can't just wipe out half the galaxy. You know, that's a job for Thanos in, in Marvel. You should have gone for the head. I'm just not sure I want to keep seeing stuff over and over again like we just saw on Corellia. I definitely want to see more about this new galaxy. And I'm absolutely interested in hearing more about these Jedi fairy tales, some of them that might be true. I'm enjoying the show. I'm looking forward to more, but my request for Disney and Lucasfilm 
is, hey, give us more hope, less modern allegory. Ahsoka Part 3 comes out August 29th, again, on a Tuesday. Tuesdays from here until Part 8 on October 3rd. We will find out the episode title during our watch, since it it's not available right away. I mean, even Disney Plus only had Part 1 and Part 2, and then later updated the show pages to include the titles. I'm not entirely sure, though, if some special people have been getting you know, episodes early. I know we're not first anymore with our recaps, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm not getting credit for my observations anyway, even when I was first. If you ain't first, you're last. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, do you like this podcast? You know, please, if you do, please tell me. Spread the word, too. I, I don't think my vocal stance on parts of the sequels endeared me to certain segments of the Star Wars online community. It's been tough getting new people to sign on. Thank you so much, those of you who remain loyal listeners of This Is The Way podcast. I wish I could do more. I wish there were more people around me that not just like Star Wars, but, you know, those certainly exist. But I wish there were more people who were willing to watch it and then talk with me about it while I'm recording. It'd be so much better to have more voices on here. Want me to see what you think? You can send feedbacks or comments via email at thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Yes, you can send it on Twitter and Instagram at This Is The Way Pod or on Facebook.com slash This Is The Way Pod. And our link tree has all the links at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash This Is The Way Pod. But email is the best way to make sure I see it. And make sure you tell me if you want me to share your, your comments. And if you want me to credit you with your first name and last initial and where you're from. Until next time, thanks for joining me for the second episode of the first season of Ahsoka. I'm your host, Steve Lascazzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.